Empire. Training on the slopes from a master. In World Cup and, and USSA races, there's different point systems that, that are sort of, that's what you live by as a young racer. And I felt like while it might be serious or seem serious to your average person, I felt like it was a really cool objective element that you could introduce to seeing where people would understand um, where they stacked up, where their sort of sweet spot was. That's former Olympian and decorated world ski champion Bodie Miller, who discusses modern training and his heart of a champion. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. For the majority of the time, this show just singularly focuses on tech advances, but every once in a while, we end up swerving into the lane of the past and into the mind of a champion. Bodie Miller was a fearless Olympic skier, and as you'll hear in this interview, it was his best friend and every so often his worst enemy. These days, he's helping skiers of all levels find their best runs without some of the mind games that he was playing on himself. Our guest this week is one of the most decorated American skiers, two-time World Cup champion, six-time Olympic medalist, Bodie Miller, who joins us to discuss his venture into tech. Skio. Hey, Bodie, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Hey, thanks so much for taking the time today. It's great to speak with you. Um, take me through what Skio is. Can you tell everybody what it is? Yeah, the, the fundamental element is, is a free app. Um, and, and the concept behind it was to sort of I pieced together a bunch of different aspects of snow sports skiing that, that I didn't feel like were being um, effectively addressed. There's a ton of apps out there that give you um, your GPS, give you speed, you know, total vertical, a bunch of stuff like that. And, and honestly, because we launched uh, sort of very quickly, we're, we're not even, I wouldn't say on the, you know, advanced end of that aspect of it, but what we really wanted to do, we have a, a really solid algorithm engine that, that sort of takes all that data and puts it back into more meaningful stuff about your skiing and how to improve and where you're at. And one of the fundamental aspects that I always wanted to create was um, a ranking system. And in this case, it's called UAR, which is Universal Alpine Ranking. And it essentially allows your average person to do what we did in, in racing, which was know how you were performing and where you stacked up versus everybody else. And in World Cup and, and USSA races, there's different point systems that, that are sort of, that's what you live by as a young racer. And I felt like while it might be serious or seem serious to your average person, I felt like it was a really cool objective element that you could introduce to skiing where people would understand um, where they stacked up, where their sort of sweet spot was, what they could do to improve. It would help them have a roadmap of kind of, um, yeah, how, how to get better and what to work on. Plus there's passive coaching elements that, give you tasks and drills and sort of inform you of that stuff automatically. So I, I really felt like um, that was an important component. The, the, the beginning of this started with a guy who had worked in the sensor space for pediatrics. So he's a, a neuroscience, uh, neuroscientist and, and uh, surgeon and, and doctor. And he had a passion for skiing and he was working with these really sophisticated sensor systems. And he said, look, I'm going to just put this into skiing um, and, and go from there. So, when you upgrade to the full sensor system, you have uh, 
perfect awareness of what's happening on your ski. So one sensor goes on either ski and one goes on the center of your chest, like a heart rate monitor. And you have this incredible um, amount of objective data of how your skis are rolling onto edge, whether you're arcing or sliding, how many G-forces you're pulling really accurately. Um, if you're initiating with your upper body, if you're rotating too much. And I just felt like skiing was subjective. It had always been, I battled with my coaches throughout my whole career because one coach would tell you one thing, another one would tell you something different. I just wanted objective data that I could reference to that stuff. And I'm happy to be finally bringing that to the general public. So there's a couple parts to this. So we've seen this a lot in, in exercise, like places like Orange Theory, where they've added almost a competitive element to it to you know kind of keep people motivated as they go through their exercise. Are you looking at it that way where you are allowing people to kind of see how they stack up against other amateur skiers? Yeah, and I hate the term, but it is it's kind of gamification. And and especially this year with COVID, um, you know, we, there's a challenge element that's actually it's it's available online, which I apologize to everybody else who can't do it yet, but that that release will be coming out shortly where um there's challenges proposed by me and there's challenges that people can propose to each other. So you can essentially pick your challenge. It can be who arcs the most turns, who skis the most vertical, who makes the most consecutive turns, who hits the biggest jump. Like, and you can push that to all your friends or, or anybody else. And there's also challenges established by me and, and the, the company where you can win prizes, helmets, skis, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, and, and the concept there is, yeah, it's gamification. It's, it's yeah. being able to do something um, that, that kind of increases interest, increases interactivity between people. It's not just, again, you could do that with your friend if you were skiing with them. And if you had some way to judge it, but who's going to be like, yeah, you were turning better than me that time. <laughs> right. like, in a sense, in a sense, you need objective data to have that make any sense. So, and what about like slopes and regions? Are you kind of putting in almost a ranking system to go into the competitive nature of this? Yeah. UAR will, will spit out a, a universal Alpine ranking after five runs minimum. You, you get the free app and again, it's, you know, there's no cost and you don't have to, <laughs> You don't have to upgrade if you don't want to, but then there's a paid version and then there's the hardware is sort of the, the top tier. But with the free app, because it's only using the telemetry in your phone, there are a lot of assumptions about what you need. But still, the, the ranking system measures things like speed and, and ability to generate force in turns and you know your accelerometer and how quickly you stop at times. And it'll give you a ranking um, based on one to 100 of where you stack up in the world of skiing. So, mm. you know, nobody at this point is, is going to ever get to a hundred because you'd be required to be a Michaela Schifrin or Marcel Hersher on world cup. And you'd have to see that. And then you'd have to be, a um, you know, a, a, a an extreme skier who drops 50 and 60 foot cliffs and who does inverted uh, jumps all the time, who can land backwards in powder, who can, you know, there's just, there's such a range to skiing that ultimately there is no person who's the best, you know, who's great at everything, but um, everyone kind of finds their lane and it, it just informs you and it, it informs you about your equipment too. If you know, you can get direct objective feedback on which skis are working and, and what your total load is on your body, how much you're, you're, you know, doing. Um, and, and I think there's a lot, there really is, everyone's always asked like, who is this for? And I'm kind of, I mean, it might sound a little silly, but it's really kind of for anyone who's, putting skis on or thinking about it from yeah. beginner um, all the way up to uh, a world cup skier who needs really solid baseline reference stuff from the beginning of the season to the middle of the season, to the end of the season, when they're testing skis, when they want to know 
is there a difference between these 15 pairs of skis that I've been racing on? And what is that difference? And you can't, you can't tell that just from your coaches looking at video and looking at split times that are once every 30 seconds in a course. Like uh, clearly I see a huge appeal for, for avid skiers and ones who do want to make it a, a competitive part of their life for people like me, my family, we live in an area where, um, we go up on weekends seasonally to areas. Could you take me through for an amateur and a real strict amateur like myself? How does this help me? So, so there's a, a bunch of really cool parts about that is, is, um, for one thing, the moment you, you put it on, right, it's going to be recording everything. So, but you also have a lifetime, um, sort of chart that'll tell you, this is where you ended last year, right? So you can compare, but it also, we took all the data that's generated from what you're doing skiing. And it, it, I would say it's nominally effective when you only have the phone, but when you have the hardware, it's really a, a clear map objectively of what you did. And we took all that data um, and we reverse engineered it back into an avatar. So on your phone, you'll, especially for next year, the one is, is really advanced. This year it was kind of a little robotic character, but for next year, it's really a, it's, a pretty lifelike think of like ready player one level uh you know computer generated graphics version of you and it captures everything you do every movement you do while you have the sensors on and that allows you to have a visual of what you're doing to ski so if you go up this year you can actually see visually what you look like the end of that last year what you look like this year and it helps you to recalibrate and figure out if you want to do something different and without somebody having to take video of you and it, again you'll have push notifications of Hey, you know what? You've been skiing on groomers 97% of the time. Um, and you're on a 106 underfoot ski. Maybe try something a little narrower and, and you'll be able to enjoy it more. Or, you know, and it, we can also tell because of the body position changes, we can tell fatigue and it can do predictive analytics. So, hey, you know, your position's really shifting back and your ability to generate force is going down. Maybe take a break or call it for the day. This is when injuries happen, you know, that type of stuff. So, for, from everything from informationally for beginners of just, you know, a lot of passive information that comes through the app of, you know, this is where, you know, you should be seeing, this is what you should be working on. These are skis that might make sense for you um, with no real sales pitch. You just kind of objectively saying that um, all the way up to a, you know, a roadmap and, and competitive, even for you, right. With your family, you don't have to be a, a racer to want to challenge your kids or challenge your wife to a little contest. Yeah. And you can, you can specify exactly what that is. It can be anything. It can be, I mean, it can be a very nuanced challenge. Anything that's available in there is, is you can make your own challenge out of it. So I don't know if this is possible now. Are there, can this thing tell you in real time how to make adjustments? Are we there yet where you're, you're coming down the mountain and it's, it's signaling you in some way to alter what you're so, doing? So as of now, as of you, that's a great question and, and very appropriate as of now. Um, sorry, I have a little one yelling at me as of now you, I I'm not comfortable with any of the audio solutions for skiing because I just feel like it's a safety hazard to not have really perfect, clear hearing. I mean, if somebody's yelling, they're going to hit you. There's just, there's a ton of feedback that I've um, put a huge amount of value in uh, uh, for auditory, but um, without leaking the name and it, it rhymes with hose, um, a very high end audio company <laughs> we're, we're partnering in with to use open ear audio stuff. So no interference with ambient sound. Um, but we have the technology in the app. It's already designed, but I wasn't comfortable promoting it because I didn't want people wearing headphones 
listening to the app, telling them how good they were doing or how bad they were doing, and then hurt themselves because they couldn't hear the world around them. Well, so, right. I mean, there's the liability, ear, the right? Solution, yeah. Well, the open ear solution is the solution to that. And we just, we weren't there this year, so we didn't do it. But ultimately, that is the goal here is that you don't have to wait till the bottom and then, you know, try to think back on what you were doing right. You need real time, like immediate, like that's it. And then that's not it. You know, that'll, that's where people will really, I think, benefit. Um, all right. So take me back a little bit to, to your career when you were skiing um, for the United States of America. Um, what was your training regimens like and where have you seen sports technology go in, in your sports since your retirement? Um, my training was pretty unique in that I was never, um, you know, I, I've, I've sort of, you know, I've said it. I think a lot of people sort of take it as hyperbole or something, but I wasn't very physically gifted. I, I'm not the strongest guy out there. I'm not, you know, I was, I was, I come from a skinny family. You know, it was, it was a lot of work just to get enough muscle endurance and, and mass to be competitive on World Cup. And it, it, there was no chance. If you looked at, you know, the physical stats, just break it down objectively, physically, I was, I was kind of in the middle uh, middle to bottom on most things of, of, you know, objective physical criteria for World Cup racers. But um, I really had to work hard to figure that out. In the beginning, we, I built an eccentric machine. I don't know if you've seen it on some of the videos and stuff in my barn in New Hampshire um, to just hyperload my, my body. And, you know, I was, I would call it successful, um, you know, to, to changing my body enough to tolerate what World Cup demanded. But I still was never, never near the top of that side of it. What I, what I ended up realizing late in my career, there's a, there's a technology called B-Strong. It was originally Kotsky with the Japanese restricted blood flow technology that they've been doing for a long time, but they just managed to keep it pretty secret. And that technology allows you to somewhat restrict the venous return of the blood from your muscles and therefore trick your body into thinking that you're in oxygen deprivation and you're, you're there. That's one of its primary measurements of how much work you're doing. And so you trick your body. So you're doing virtually no weight, but your body thinks you're doing a max weight workout. So you don't damage the muscle because you're actually only lifting, you're doing curls with tennis balls or you're doing body weight squats, which I could do 150 of if I had no restricted blood flow material on. But with the restricted blood flow, you're basically stumping out. Your legs are quitting on you at 45 reps and then the second set it doesn't get any better it it starts off your second set which is only 20 seconds rest in between um the way you ended the first set so you're just it's this incredible way of accumulating strength and endurance and blood volume and um you know cardiovascular power without damaging your body and everything i did throughout my training career was super abusive to my body that was what ended you know, and it's what ends most athletes' careers is not so much the competition, but the actual training to get ready for competition. And that technology is really the biggest change. And unfortunately, it's still not widely used. It's just, uh, you know, it's a, unfortunately, it's a sneaky, <laughs> it's a sneaky hidden technology that would impact virtually every human on the planet. I mean, they, they originally developed it in Japan for cardiac patients who had heart surgery, and they would put this on just while they were laying there in bed, and they would tighten it for one minute and then relax it and tighten it. And they built new capillaries and little bypass that your body would bypass little clogs in your arteries and do all this crazy stuff um, that, that dramatically in, improved the you know, time of recovery and overall 
outcome. And um, so there's there's an application for that technology for basically every human on the planet. And it's meanwhile, it's known by a very, very select few. You know, it's interesting because, you know, we've talked to a lot of different athletes in a spectrum of different sports, and you're hearing things like load management now and all of these different kind of mentalities about how you're supposed to train to be at peak performance. And what I'm hearing you say is you were really in the old school method of you're going to beat your body down and push it to the limits. And maybe you're rethinking that a little bit or, or do you not? And do you kind of look at it as that was my path to getting to where I got to? Well, I think I think it's a balance. and And ironically, you know, most of the reason I trained the way I did, they're okay. There was two. I, I needed to get certain physical attributes, but my biggest strength and what I was, what I sort of vested myself in, in my one skill set that I could do better than anybody else, right? The, the thing that was going to allow me to beat the rest of the world was my mental fortitude, my ability to, to push through pain and my ability to, to take more risk. And that comes from that type of training. The irony is, um, and, and so we had that whole philosophy during my career of, of train um, smarter, right, not harder. And, you know, the sports science developed during my career, you know, it really didn't exist in the beginning of my career. And it was really the, the prominent um, routines by the middle to end of my career. And, and that, that was fine. He trained smarter, he trained less, and he rested correctly. And you ended up with physically really fit athletes who weren't as, a, as abused or beat up. Than, than you would have, say, in the old days. But you also ended up with athletes who didn't understand how to push through pain and limits and mm. who weren't just as mentally tough because the training was essentially a bit easier in a way. Um, and that, that in sea racing is, is a death sentence. Like you, you have to be in the Stargate feeling like you're, you know your limits and you know how tough you are and you have that chip on your shoulder of, of kind of badassness, I should say. And yeah. the irony is that, that be strong actually makes that it's, it's even more dramatic because for me, when I was doing say my eccentric squat, right, I'd have 450 pounds on there. It would take me eight seconds to go down. I'm just doing a negative. So I would just hold the weight, go down into a squat. I couldn't really ever lift that much weight up, but I would just go down and resist it as much as I could. At the bottom, my machine would, would engage. It would lift the weight back up. And I would go and do another one down. And when I got to say six or seven or eight reps, um, I felt failure, right? I, and the reality was I was damaging my body so badly that if I had done 10 or 12, I might've ruptured my spine or right? I could have blown out a disc. I could have separated my quad tendon. I could have blown out my patellar tendon. I was truly at the limit of what my body could take with, with be strong you're able to get to the same point of complete failure. Like you're, you could not do another one. Meanwhile, there's no risk to your body. So you're kind of freed up to push all the way to the limit. Like if you're a bodybuilder and you're doing curls and you do one more rep, you'll rupture your, your bicep tendon, right? So you, you really are at a dangerous point. With this, you're still just curling tennis balls. So you're not going to rupture your bicep tendon. You're just going to find out how far you can push past your limit and therefore get those gains and become mentally tougher. So it, it really is like, a, I mean, in my opinion, it's the best, most effective, most incredible training modality that I've ever seen. And it, it doesn't miss really anything. It's ironic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wish I'd had that when I was younger. It would have saved me a lot of time and effort. And, you know, I think I still would have been mentally tougher and more sort of um, able to push through limits than I am now. But mentally, it appeared in real time, you were willing to take chances and push through as much as possible. Was that happening for you? I mean, you described this, you better be ready to do that. 
were you pushing yourself even beyond the limits that you anticipated of yourself in real time in real competitions? Yeah, yeah, but not not so much physically. I mean, you have to respect those limits to some degree physically. What I pushed through and, and the way that I did it was unique. I think, um, you know, granted, I don't know what every other athlete's doing in their head, but um, but I, I would build scenarios. So like a method actor might, I would make myself into something else in the start gate. So if you're just racing a World Cup to get the trophy and to get the 20,000 Swiss francs you might get for winning, you only have a certain amount of motivation. I would I would write down in my notebook, I'd build these stories, scenarios of saving my sister from from drowning or, or of, you know, of rescuing somebody from a burning vehicle where I had to lift the car up. And, but I would make it so real and I would fill in all the details and I would practice it that in the start gate, that was my agenda. Like that's where I would put my head. So I was racing to save my sister from dying. So people saw my intensity and they're like, Jesus, he looks like he's trying a lot. He's not good looking, but man, does he look like he's got good motivation. And, and that was my secret sauce. That was how I was able to take risks that other guys just logically couldn't take. And that was more in line and, and, and approach to the course I was able. And then physically I, I knew my limits. I knew what I more or less could and couldn't do. I still pushed it, but you have to respect that part or you just end up in the fence all the time. I, I tried it and I did end up in the fence a lot. So but that was that was really the the secret sauce. It was kind of like a a version of method acting to put my brain into a position where I was racing for much more than just a World Cup win. In the moment, though, how do you make your? That's not happening in reality. Like, how do you how do you make yourself believe that? You just play it. You, you practice. Your brain doesn't know the difference, honestly. If if you were to sit here right now, if you have kids, right, and you were to write down a story of your, your child in severe danger, right? Somebody abducting your kid and, and running away through the woods with your kid. You'll have an immediate physiological response. Your hair on your arms will stand up a little bit. Your heart rate will elevate slightly. If you practice that and you build in enough details that your brain can't, it can't do, it can't multitask. It can't worry about the course that you're about to see and be invested in that story. And you just, you, once you get going on it, your brain can't switch back and forth that easy. It doesn't want to either. It just, it becomes immersed in the story that it's running in its head, the movie that's playing in its head. And, and you just execute physically using that um, physiological response. So, I mean, I had times in the start gate where I was more or less sweating, standing still in five degree weather without doing anything. I mean, my heart rate's at 175, 180, just standing there because I'm so immersed in some super intense um, method acting process in my mind. And my, I feel like I could crush my poles with my hand and just explode my grip. Like that's how amped up I was, but it doesn't show on the outside. And then I would go and, and I matched the story or the, the process that I put myself in to the course that I was on. So if it was a really melt top that got tough at the bottom. I'd have a different story that accommodated that. If it was Kitzbühel where basically, or Bormio, or right out of the start gate, you're right in the, in the shit and you're going, you know, 80 miles an hour on rickety snow. I would have a totally different story where I was, you know, in a different physiological position kicking out of the start gate. And it was, like I said, I don't know that anyone else does it, but for me, that was the differentiator solely that you could narrow it down to one thing. And that was it. I was racing with so much more intensity and ability to take risk. And, I was essentially trying to become the mother who lifts the car off of her kid, you know, who can do things that are so far outside of what you'd expect for a human body to do because the motivation is so strong. 
did you become a different person? Like, were, were you almost unrecognizable to your coaches and competitors when you were about to actually go race? No, because I'd done it since I was, since I was little. And uh, I'd, I'd kind of always been that. And they, they knew to expect that. Like, I'm the kind of dude that made everybody wait at the top of the course. If I was starting 55 in a race, all the coaches, and this is early on in my career, it just didn't, when you've seen skiing your whole life, like every coach has, and they know to rec- they recognize it like night and day. It's like this dude brings it, like really has like totally bad technique, bad tactics, you know, bad physical ability, but huge intensity. And, and they, they'd wait. I mean, they waited every time because I was also capable of coming down, you know, my first World Cup ever. I started 69. I started two from the end. There was only 71 guys in the race. I started 69 and qualified for the second run, broke into the top 30. And then ended up 11th in the race, in my very first World Cup race. And that was so unheard of at that time in a giant slalom where the course deterioration was, was unprecedented, huge rut. I mean, even the best guys had the very, had the best five guys in the race started 69. Probably none of them would have made the top 30, literally zero. And I did it the first time I'd ever been asked to. And that was simply because I had this incredible motivation that guys just couldn't, you know, they, they didn't understand where it was coming from, but they saw it and they witnessed it and they were like, Jesus, that guy is going to, if he can make it down, it's going to be trouble for the top guys. And it was just a matter of if I could get good enough and strong enough to actually make it down. Um, this is a bizarre question. Have you thought about trying to teach this to other athletes? Like put the tech part aside that we've discussed with all the things that you're doing. Have you considered imparting that kind of wisdom to other athletes? Yeah, yeah, and I've talked about it openly, um, really, my whole career. But the the challenge is that if you, like you asked a very good question, how do you make it believable? How do you, if you want to make it real, it's real. So theoretically, I've experienced uber traumatic emotional mental experiences thousands of times. Like I've, I've experienced the almost loss of my family, my sisters, like all sorts of things a thousand times it's really demanding emotionally. I don't know that that many people are capable of committing to that type of experience. I mean, there's times where I broke down in the finish line, you know, in tears, not because I won the race, but because there was so much emotional strain on my mind. And even though it wasn't about the race at all, I had just gone through something for the 400th time that most humans would go through once or twice in their life. You know, the experience of a loss of a loved one or some, you know, rescuing somebody from something where you're just overcome with emotion at the end and that that part of it was real I mean by the end of my career I stopped doing this because I'd hit a point where I was like I can't I just I can't take it anymore it's too much you know it's not it's not worth it at this point I'll just race on my given ability luckily at that point I'd gotten good enough um, with all my experience and, and maturing that I was still competitive but there's a reason I wasn't winning as many races at the end of my career I mean the last four or five years I was very strong and I, I still had the ability to win in all five events but i didn't win races and that that's really the differentiator yeah you know, it's funny for people like myself on the outside we we look at you all and we think what they're dreaming about is greatness and fame and money and the medals and all this adulation and at the same time clearly a lot of us had no idea what was going on to get you prepared to do the things that you were doing at the level that you were doing it you know, and I think skiing is a, a bit unique too. Probably, I mean, there are other sports that are certainly in the same category, but the consequences of, of pushing like I did and seeing 
are so severe and, and the margins are so thin. I mean, you can be winning and then you hook one tiny piece of snow on your edge, you face plant and you're paralyzed or dead. Like it can, it can be that dramatic. And I've seen it with my, you know, competitors and, and, you know, throughout the history of the sport. So it really, it doesn't lend itself to, to taking a, a ton of risk. I mean, you know, you, the consequences are so severe and the recovery times are so long and you just, people tend to not do it. So that really was what opened the door for me to be successful, even though I was quite a bit worse than a lot of guys in a lot of different categories. But if I was willing to do this and if I could survive the crashes, I was able to have a lot of success. It's wild. Um, is this your, and this, I'll leave you with this is, is, is Skio the, the first thing that first tech venture for you, or have you been dabbling in a lot of other things, um, along the way? Um, no, I, well, I had a, I had a company really funny actually back when like, uh, MySpace was, was the thing, huh. um, you know, in like, Oh, six, Oh seven. Uh, I had a, I had a tech, an app called ski space and it was more of a social network for skiing, but and it, it didn't get fully built out, but I had 50,000 or so, 60,000 paying customers. It was a great little business. Unfortunately, the company that owned the technology, the wireframe Text America, where you could take a picture back in those days, it was, you know, flip phones, flip phones generally. You could take a picture and post it directly to, um, you know, your, your profile on SkiSpace. And it also it was intended to be kind of like a Craigslist of skiing where you could do a ski swap. You could change equipment with other, with other members. You could plan trips. It was like an Expedia, Craigslist, and MySpace, Facebook, um, all combined together. And, and, and some of the coaching apps now, it had elements of coaching as well, where you could post videos and you could ask for help on technique and things like that. Um, but the technology was sold. The company was sold that owned the technology, and it basically evaporated overnight. But that was sort of the base of what I wanted to do for the sport. I felt like, um, and now you see it in all kinds of different fitness um, you know, aspects where, you know, cycling and, and hiking and hunting and yoga and, um, you know, everything has their own little community. And, and I think it's crazy that it hasn't already been done really well in skiing. It's been done by a bunch of, of app companies and some of them do a really good job. But in this case, really building that whole thing has been a, a longer goal. And I just haven't had the bandwidth to focus on it, but I'm excited to do it now. Bodie Miller is a two-time World Cup champion, a six-time Olympic medalist, and has his newest tech venture, Skio, the digital ski platform that you can check out. Thank you so much for joining us, Bodie. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. On the next Future Sport Podcast, the Super Bowl in a Pandemic. We'll discuss the data behind America's connection to the biggest sports game of the year and how it changes without its typical coordinated fanfare supporting it. That will do it for this episode. As always, the future is now. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. The Future Sport Podcast is brought to you by 3Advance, developers of sports tech apps that are AI-powered and UX-focused. So if you're looking to create some apps for your startup or your sports biz calls for some artificial or business intelligence, you should check out 3Advance. They're incredible. Go to 3Advance.com. That's the number 3Advance.com.